our day and age, that, that seems such a big thing they met every day. And, you know, a lot of times people think meeting twice a week is crazy. You know, you're going to church on a Wednesday? What is that? Didn't you go on Sunday? But, you know, um, as as the church senses its lack of ability to fit into the world and find associations in the world and find community in the world, the church gathering becomes so precious and so important, especially to meet and to worship with like-minded people, people that uh, love the Lord and are hungry for the Lord and want to know what the Lord has to say in and through His Word. So uh, I'm excited tonight. We're starting a new book. If you will turn to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. So, boy, I really enjoyed Daniel. That was a lot of fun for me. And uh, I'm, I'm as excited to move forward and get into this last little section. If you were to pinch your Bible from where we are now into the beginning of Matthew, you see how much we have to go. It's very little. And these, these books go pretty quick. So um, we're going to now tackle one of the longer books of the minor prophets. So Hosea starts the minor prophets. And this is, and then there's 12 chapters. So it's, it's short compared to those of you who went through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Those were larger books. So as we get into this book, it's good to know that the Bible is divided into, or people like to think of the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are, there's five of them, actually five books of them. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. You guys got all that? You have to memorize all this stuff. So there's five books, major prophets. Why are they called the major prophets? Is that like the big leagues? Like you, you go through the minors and then you hit the big leagues? No, don't think that. It just basically has to do with the size of the book. So there's there's um, larger there's a larger volume with those prophets. There's more that we have to cover, and we did that. The minor prophets. Then there are twelve books, and this is what's going to sort of slide us into finishing up the Old Testament. These books are called the minor prophets, and that's because they're smaller, not because they're less impactful, not because they're less important, not because you have to get through the minors to get to the majors. These books, uh, I like to think of it as espresso. They are power-packed. They're shorter. You don't need as much. But if you drink just a little bit, it's going to have a great impact on you. So these are the espresso books. I like to think of them like that. So... If you're ready, we're going to list these books. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Malachi is the Italian translation. So, so now as we get into to these books... 
It's uh, good to understand we've finished the chronological outworking of the Old Testament. So there's no more Old Testament to cover. So I'd like to just really briefly give you a, a just kind of a capsule of the Old Testament, if you will want that. Does that sound good? Just a real quick capsule. So Old Testament, chronological working, starts with God created. And as God created, then very soon after that, man fell. God created man to have fellowship with him. He created the environment to enjoy that fellowship with him. And man sinned. That sin entered into the world. At that point, it was just Adam and Eve. Right after sin entered the world, God put in motion his plan to redeem the world. And that's found in Genesis 3.15. This plan then would come about through a savior who would come about through a nation, the nation of Israel. And so there's a focus on the nation of Israel. So after Adam and Eve, they fell, then sin entered, then their sons committed murder, Cain murdered Abel, things got worse and worse, got so bad that God had to wipe wipe everything out. So that's where the flood came in. Noah then restarted the human race with um, those few that went on with him on the boat. As the human race then began to repopulate, then we look at this next figure, Abraham. So Abraham, his father, was an idol maker. He lived in the land of Uz, And God called him. He called him out through Abraham then. Abraham left where he is from and and God began to work in his life to where he would have a son, Isaac. And then Isaac would have a son, Jacob. From Jacob, who would have 12 sons, the last of those 12 sons was Joseph. And those 12 sons of Jacob would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And that last son, Joseph, was sold into slavery by his older brothers and taken into Egypt. And so by a series of God's sovereign events, God raised up Joseph to a very high position in the Egyptian palace in the Egyptian hierarchy and he was able then to bring his family to Egypt and then a new pharaoh came in charge brought the nation of Israel into slavery the nation of Israel kept growing and growing and growing God used that time to grow them in numbers as a people until finally the next important figure is Moses So the nation of Israel that had come from Abraham, that had come from Abraham's uh, eventual grandson, Jacob, who had 12 sons. Now we have this tribes, this growing influence and numbers of the nation of Israel in slavery. They're praying 
Send us a deliverer. We don't like the slavery stuff. We're tired. These Egyptians are harsh taskmasters. So God raised up Moses. Moses, the deliverer, deliverer, led them out through a series of miraculous events, led them out, freed them, and they go into the wilderness. As they go in the wilderness, they get the Ten Commandments. As they go into the wilderness, they learn that they need to depend on God. Their sandals would not wear out because they were divinely taken care of by God. They were provided food, the manna, because God was divinely taking care of that need. They were led by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, which would give them the direction that God wanted to lead them. And where was that? That was the promised land. God was raising up a people for himself to settle in a land that he was giving them so that they would worship him in a way that the nations around them would see their God and come to know their God. That was the whole purpose. And so the children of Israel, they go through the wilderness. They get to the edge of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea. And they didn't go in because they lacked faith. So they had to wait 40 years for that generation to die out. And then God raised up Joshua to take them in. So Joshua takes them in. God divinely uses his strength and his power to deliver the enemies that are in the land into Israel's hand. Israel becomes stronger and stronger in the place that God called them to be. They became a nation. They had their tabernacle where they had worshiped God and honor God. And God was doing an amazing work. He was blessing them, but they wanted to be like other nations. They didn't want to be who God called them to be. And so they began to worship the way other nations would worship. And then they asked God to have a king like the other nations had instead of God ruling over them. God said, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. But here's what's going to happen. When you have a king, he's going to take everything. You're going to work for him. You're going to plow your land and he's going to get all your stuff. He's going to take everything you have and, and you're going to work. and do, So you can have it. And they said, yeah, we still want it. So the first king comes in, Saul. The second king comes in, David. The third king comes in, Solomon. Now, that was the height of the reign of the nation of Israel. Now their tabernacle went from a temple. They were worshiping God in the land. God was blessing them. However, as Solomon died, there was infighting. The nation split to north and south. The northern kingdom was ten tribes. The southern kingdom was two tribes. In the southern kingdom, that was called Judah. In the northern kingdom, that was called Israel. The kings subsequently in the nation of Israel, all their kings were bad. And God used the Assyrians to judge them and take them away. The southern kingdom, Judah, most of their kings were bad, but not all of them were bad. So they had a little bit longer, but they eventually fell in 586 B.C. to the Babylonians. God took them into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. 
And then God allowed them to go back. And as they went back into their land, they were always more weak. Their temple worship and their temple building back was never the same. And that's pretty much the whole chronology of the Old Old Testament. So when you read Psalms and Proverbs and um, maybe uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, and the, so the, all those books fit into that 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 time frame, that chrono, uh, chronological order. So then there is four hundred silent years of God not speaking through a prophet. And then that's when Jesus came. So when Jesus came, they had their temple. It was a weakened temple. It wasn't like it was in Solomon's day. They were in the land, but they are weakly in the land. Over those 400 years, different people came and conquered the land. And it went, the land changed hands so many times. Ottoman Empire and uh, the Crusaders. And um, then eventually in Jesus' time, the Romans were in charge of the land until 70 AD. And that's when the Romans conquered the nation of Israel, or I should say destroyed the nation of Israel, the temple. And that's kind of where we've been for almost 2,000 years. No temple, still in in the land, um, but they were out of the land for 2,000 years until the next biggest significant event, 1948. After 2,000 years out of the land, as God said, he would bring them back into the land, and he didn't. They're in the land now. So God is now working in the nation of Israel, bringing the Jews who are scattered around the world back into the land, and he's preparing them for that 70th week of Daniel, which we have talked about. But it's that final seven-year period until that precedes Jesus coming back again. But I say all that because sometimes it's it's uh, confusing to get the Old Testament, the chronological part in order, and especially in cases like tonight. So we're going to talk about the book of Hosea, but this book was written during the time where the northern kingdom was flourishing. And so we're kind of, if if you've been working through Daniel with us and through those Old Testament, uh, or I'm sorry, those major prophets. So now we're going back again chronologically. But when we finished off with the nation of Israel being allowed, we talked about being allowed to return to their land. That was pretty much the end of the chronological order of the Old Testament. So now the book of Hosea, if you turn there, this is, uh, it's, 13 chapters, it's a powerful book, and Hosea, as a prophet, he fits this quote that I read by Stephen Orland, who is a a spiritual advisor to Billy Graham, and it says that when he was asked about his leadership and qualifications for ministry, he said, bended knees, wet eyes, And broken heart. And I think we need more of that today. I think we need that more from our spiritual leaders, more from our pastors, more from our congregants. And as I kind of tongue in cheek said in the beginning, how 
we see the things going on in the world now, it, it, it makes me feel like I'm just not fitting in more and more and more. I'm feeling like a, a, there's just not a, a place for me. And when I think about that, I, I just think about my heart really hurts for those people who don't know the Lord. And when we see the things going on in the world and people in the world are not able to connect the dots about what the reasoning is behind the chaos, behind the evil, behind the destruction, when people are not able to see that and still holding out hope the world is going to get better, that that breaks my heart. It makes me sad. And that's really what we see with the prophets. The prophets weren't, you know, light, jovial people. They were broken-hearted people. And it was a sincere broken-heartedness for their own people. And we see that in Jesus. We see this broken heart that Jesus had for his people. He wanted so desperately for them to to know his love. He he wanted so desperately for them to experience the good things that he had for them, for them. And and it's kind of kind of like us sometimes, you know, if there's people we care about, there's people we we love and we we want to do good things for them, but if they if they reject it and they won't receive it, it it's it's hard for us. Or if we know people that are close to us that are straying from the Lord, it breaks our heart. It's hard. And this was the heart of Hosea. Hosea probably, in my opinion, had the hardest calling and job, which if you think about the other prophets, that's saying a lot. But you see, his job was to illustrate to a people their own condition before God. So he had to live out in a way that the nation of Israel could see what they were doing. And this shows us how how much God desires for people to know the truth and to come back to him. God will go and has gone to great lengths so that people will come to him, will receive him. And so Hosea was one like that. Hosea's calling was to marry a prostitute and to have kids with the prostitute. And then to go after her when she left the marriage to have adulterous affairs. That was his that was what God called him to do. That's that's pretty radical, isn't it? But what it shows us is this unfailing love of God. That he knew how hard headed and how hard hearted the nation has had gotten, and he needed to do something to shock them out of their complacency, out of their unbelief. So let's dig in the book of Hosea, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. 
the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So those are the southern kings, if you recall. And so he's, he's giving us a time frame that Hosea operated in, prophesied in. His ministry was about 70, or I'm sorry, 50 years of prophesying from about 787 to 722 BC. And his ministry of prophesying was primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so it says, And also in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. So this was the northern king at the time that he was prophesying. And this was not the original Jeroboam, who was the first northern king of Israel, who took, I'm sorry, took of the divided kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom divided and Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom in the divided kingdom. Rehoboam was the first king in the southern kingdom. So this is not him. This is Jeroboam II or grandson of the original Jeroboam. So now what's important about this timestamp that we just got? What's important about it is to know that the northern kingdom was in a time of prosperity. You may have some of those names come to mind Uzziah is one in Isaiah chapter 6. It says in the days or in the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You guys remember that at all? In the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah was a king who brought great prosperity to the northern kingdom. He brought great comfort to them. So they were kind of, if you want to look at it, they're kind of on easy street. They're kind of in a, in a good place. And that's important to note as we understand this book because as they were in a state of comfort outwardly, they were in a state of corruption inwardly. So even though outwardly it would seem like we're good, we don't have anything to worry about, we're comfortable, when they started to think that, they then went after the things of the world. And even though they saw outwardly things were good, they did not see inwardly things were bad. And so God raises up this prophet, Hosea, to talk to a flourishing, comfortable, yet idolatrous nation. So in verse 2 it says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, so that's a good description of a prophet. A prophet is is basically like a transmitter. A prophet is just one who hears from God and speaks by God. There are no modern-day prophets because God has completed His revelation 
and his communication to us in his word. And that's something to note because there are religions that say there's a perpetual ongoing prophet. There are in evangelical circles now um, new apostolic reformation movement. Bethel's a very popular name in that movement. But they have an ideology where, where they are modern day prophets. And there's not. So you got to be careful of that. So we have here God saying that I spoke through Hosea directly. And Hosea was basically like a pin in God's hand. That's the best way to look at it as a, as a prophet. And here's what, here's what God says to him. He says, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So it's interesting because you have Hosea. It's always interesting to study the prophets to their personal life. There's a lot we can glean from their personal life. We looked at Daniel like that a lot. But Hosea basically was told something by God. And then you'll notice he was told to go do something with that. Now, that's the same with us, even though we are not prophets and our church is a nonprofit organization. I don't know. I got to st- That one's getting corny, isn't it? It's, maybe I'll get a couple more miles out of that one. But so, so this is what God does to us. He speaks to us in His Word, and then He says, "Go." And we have to have a good balance of hearing from Him and doing from that hearing. And a lot of times that's where we get mixed up. We just learn and learn and our heads swell and swell. But what we learn has to be exercised. And here we see that with Hosea. We see he heard and then God told him to go do something. In other words, it was necessary for him to have obedience. And what he was told to do is... Shocking. I could imagine him hearing from the Lord, and and prophets knew it was the Lord. And we don't get any questioning. We're not given what he thought or how, you know, what he may have been going through. But we we do notice that what he was told to do was, was very extremely shocking. But when you were called to be a prophet, you had to do a lot of shocking things. And those shocking things, so a prophet would have, there There are three roles of a prophet, and some of them overlap and some of them don't. But one was just to proclaim a message specifically for the people at that time. Two was to tell of the future. And then three was to illustrate things 
that messages that God was trying to get through to the nation of Israel. And so he's told to take a wife that was a harlot that most people think wasn't commentators. They, they think she wasn't a harlot to begin with because a prophet wouldn't take a, a harlot as a wife. But we don't know that for sure. That's what most people think, that he married her and then she became a, a harlot after. But when, the, when it says harlot, she's actually a prostitute. And Hosea is told to take this particular person as a wife. And God knew what was in her heart. And sometimes you and I have a a theology that's really nice, neat, tidy. But sometimes some, some things happen that doesn't fit our nice, tidy little paradigm. And what we find out is that we always don't know the way God is working. So you you can think about Job and you think, he did everything right. The Bible tells us that. And yet, he went through the most horrific things. And he had people counseling him that had those nice, tidy little boxes. And they were using that box without really knowing what God was doing and counseling him. And they were counseling him wrong. Because they didn't understand, like we're able to when we read the book of Job, that God was doing a work in Job's life that was deeper than he could ever know. And God was doing a work in Job's life for generations and generations and generations after Job to benefit, to see the faithfulness of God in our suffering. And so, we have to be understanding one in our own life, that when we say, if I do everything like the Bible tells me, A, that's A, then B will happen. And it doesn't always work like that. It reminds me of how there was a blind man that Jesus came across. And they they asked Jesus, why is he blind? Who sinned? That was their idea. That was their theology. Like, you have a physical problem because you sin. And Jesus said, neither him nor his parents, but so that the works of God could be seen. Thank you. So the works of God could be seen. So God works in ways that we have to be careful to say, you know, if if, if I you know, do everything right, then I'm going to be safe from bad things happening to me. Instead, we say, he gives and takes away, blessed be the Lord. 
that God is working in ways that, that we can't see. And our job is to surrender and obey and rest in what God is doing. But be that as it may. So this is the, the ministry that he's been given. It's also interesting that we don't always get to pick our ministries, do we? Like we may, you know, say, hey, I want a ministry like Chuck Smith or Greg Laurie or Billy Graham or pick whoever you want. And God says, well, I'm going to give you this ministry. And nobody's ever going to know you. Nobody's ever going to see. Nobody's ever going to applaud you. Nobody's ever going to think you're the best thing since sliced cheese. But God sees. And God doesn't grade on quantity. Did you know that? God grades on faithfulness. So when we get to heaven, the stars in heaven are going to be the faithful on earth. So Hosea is given this job. Go marry for yourself a harlot. Verse 3. So he went. There's there's the action. So he went and he took Gomer. And that word Gomer in Hebrew means completion and failure. Which is interesting because... The end of our exercising of our flesh like Gomer will always end in failure. No good thing will come from our flesh. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So he was to marry Gomer. He married Gomer, which that sounds like a penalty in itself, marrying somebody named Gomer. But he marries Gomer and then they have a child and the child is named Jezreel. Now, somebody who understands a little bit about Israel, and some of the, some of you have gone to Israel with us, and some of you that hopefully will go to Israel with us in 2022, understand there's a place called the Jezreel Valley. Jezreel Valley. It's an amazing, beautiful place, but in our text, Jezreel, interestingly enough, means sowing, like you're sowing seed, or scatter, you're scattering seed. And God told Hosea to name his son Jezreel because God was going to scatter them. This is what people like to call message names. So their their names mean something. So God was going to do something with the children of Israel, with the nation, the northern kingdom. He was going to scatter them. And then he points to an event that happened in the Jezreel Valley when he says that he's going to avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. So he 
brings up this point that the children of Israel are going to be scattered because of something that happened in the Jezreel Valley. And what happened in the Jezreel Valley was the epitome of the condition of the heart of the people. There was massive bloodshed and it started with King Ahab. And the desire of King Ahab in his in his vacation home. He wanted a piece of land adjacent to his vacation home. He saw it and he wanted it. And because he wanted it, he went to its owner who had a vineyard there. And the owner had this land in his family for years. It was passed down to his family. His name was Naboth. And Ahab went to Naboth and said, Hey, I want to buy your land. And he said, No, it's my family's. And so Ahab went back to his vacation home and he began to sulk like a little baby. And his wife Jezebel came in and said, what's wrong, baby? He said, I can't have that land next to me. And she said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. So she she concocted a scheme and said, let's have a party, invite Naboth over. And when he comes over, we'll have false witnesses accusing him of blaspheming God and the king. So they did that. He comes and, and they falsely accuse him and they killed Naboth to get the land. So that was a the demonstration of the heart of evil that had penetrated and corrupted the nation of Israel. But then after that, a little later, another king, Jehu, came and he came after in revenge after Jezebel threw her out the window. And so far that was that was kind of okay because she was so evil. But then he went and killed her seven sons. So he just kept extending the bloodshed. And then he killed 42 brothers. And that was just that was just God just saying this. This is just so out of control. This is going to end. This happened in the valley of Jezreel. And this is what God's pointing to is the evilness and wickedness of the nation. So in verse 5, it says, It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So that was a little play on words. In the Hebrew, those words sound very similar, Israel and Jezreel. They kind of do in English as well. But God is saying, I'm going to break their bow. And that was what happened with the Assyrians. God used the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom in 721 BC. So then in verse 6 it says, And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah. Now, that word low means no. It cancels out the word that's after that. The word after that, ruhama, is given to us in the next verse. It says, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. So the next child that was born, the daughter, was to be named lo-rahama. This, again, is a message name. 
And, and God was saying that this, this illustration, this picture that he's painting for the nation of Israel is that, that Hosea was going to marry, marry a prostitute. And that would be a, a picture for them of the nation of Israel, like Gomer, betraying the God who loves them so much. And then these, these children would have names that would give them uh, an example, a message about what's going on. And so God is saying there's, they, there came a point where he wasn't going to work with them based on mercy, based on compassion. And what was going on was that the reason is because they were rejecting God's mercy and compassion. They were rejecting God's love. They were rejecting their identity with who God had made them and called them to be. And it's as if God gave them over to what they wanted. So for us, when we, when we hear this and we read this, what we have to start thinking is, is when we start to act independently from God instead of dependently on him, what we are doing is operating in a way where we're not identifying ourselves with his love, mercy, compassion, goodness, faithfulness. And when we walk away from the Lord, he will allow us to do that. And he will allow us to do that to our own demise, to our own destruction. This is what is, is uh, said in Romans chapter 1. There comes a point where God gives people over to their desire to not want him around and not want him to be part of their life. And so we see that with the prodigal son in the New Testament in the book of Luke where he just squandered all the goodness of of what his father had given to, uh, to him. And then you remember he found himself in a pig pen with wasted all his stuff, and it, it says he came to himself. And see, this is what we need to be praying for our friends and family members, that they would come to their senses, that they'd come to themselves. And we need to pray that the Lord will do whatever it takes, as hard as that is to pray. He'll do whatever it takes to get them there. So God is now with this daughter that's being born. He, he's telling them that I'm not going to work with you in, in um, mercy. And then in verse 7, he says, yet, amazing contrast. We love that. Yet, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, the southern kingdom. He says, I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will save them, not save them by bow or sword or battle, but by horses and horsemen. So now now he's saying, I'm going to show you what you're walking away from. I'm going to show you how I wanted to work with you, how I have worked with your fathers in the past, and I'm going to do that with your southern brothers and sisters, Judah, the southern kingdom. And this is when King Sennacherib 
came down to the area, kept coming south to Judah, surrounded Jerusalem during the days of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah prayed. And the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers just like that. And God was using that to show how he wants to take care of them. So if you can pause just for a second and think about that. So there's, as believers, there's two ways we can handle our life. We can do it ourselves, Or we can say, Lord, your will be done and allow God to do it for us. So we have so many examples of that. I think of, of Sarah with, with Hagar and Sarah and Abraham not trusting in the Lord and, and asking for Hagar to take the place of Sarah to have a baby with Abraham, and, and they did. But God says, that's not, I didn't do that. That wasn't a product of me. This is not the gift, the promised child. And that was Ishmael. And later she had a child named, anybody? Isaac. Yes, thank you, Isaac. That was the promised child. But we have so many examples. We have Lot and Abraham. Lot choosing the land for himself and Abraham letting God choose. So we, the, as believers, this is what it means to walk by faith. Are we going to exercise ourselves into getting what we want to get? Or are we going to surrender our will and allow God to do what he wants to do in our life? And that was the issue that they are facing. This is the issue that we face. So in verse 8, it says, Now when she had weaned lo ruhama, no mercy, then she conceived and she bore a son. And then God said, Call his name lo am I. No am I. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So, am I means my people. So, lo cancels that out. So, now God's saying, you don't want to be identified with me. That's like, you know, not wanting to be known, uh, like, by your family name. Like, you're embarrassed of your family name, or you're not wanting to take the name of your family. You're embarrassed. You don't want your yourself to be identified with your family. And God is saying, because of that, because you didn't want to identify as the promised children, as people who have been called by me, because you didn't want to be the people that I've called you to be, instead you wanted to be some someone else, then your next son's going to be called not my children, not my people. And remember, this was an example that people would be thinking, that's a weird name for him to name his son and his daughter. But it would be a way for them to to understand and to see that God was trying to get their attention. But have you ever been in a place where you know God's trying to get your attention? And all these things keep happening and you keep hearing like the same thing. I want to really encourage you Listen to those things. Listen to the Lord. Right? The Lord could be heading off something that we don't want. He could be 
directing us in a way that's better than the way we think we're going. Don't fight the Lord. Just be very careful of that. If you're getting a check in your heart or some discernment, don't just keep pushing into that because when we disobey the Lord the first time, it could be very shocking and grieving. But if we then make it a habit, we get used to it and it becomes normal. And we don't ever want disobeying the Lord and sin to become normal. So in verse 10, it says, yet, there's another yet. So anytime you see yet, that's a good thing. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place, so in Jezreel, where it had been said to them, you are not my people, There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. So what he's saying is, these things are going to happen and they're going to be terrible. But I want you to understand that I am faithful and that I have given you an everlasting covenant. Back in the book of Genesis where where God said just what was said in verse 10, that The children of Israel will be more numerous than the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured. And so what what it's showing here is that God is faithful. What it's getting them to understand is they're going to suffer the repercussions of the rebellion and their sin, but at the same time, God is faithful. And what he's telling them is there's going to be a future restoration. And what, he, what, is, what God is telling the children of Israel is they're facing the Syrian judgment. What they're learning is their people are never going to be completely wiped out. So you want to understand a miracle. You want to see something in the Bible that's tangible evidence that God is true is the fact that there are Jewish people still. That they have been scattered around the world and then been, then they've been brought back. That they've been able to maintain their ethnicity. The only peoples of the ancient Bible times that have done that. And that is one proof and that is one testimony of God because he said that they would be more numerous than the sand. And so what he's doing in verse 10 is he, he's pointing to a future restoration. You remember Daniel chapter 9? Verses 24 through 27, God is talking about a future restoration, the 70th week of Daniel, future restoration. You want another way that you can know the Bible's true, that God wrote the Bible, is that Israel's back in the land. Another miracle, the fact that there are Jewish people, that they maintain their ethnicity, and the fact that they're back in the land after being out of it for 2,000 years. These are miracles. These are proof texts that what you're reading here is actually from God. So he says in verse 11, he says, Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel, north and south, shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. So he's saying there's going to be a time when when you're going to have one king ruling over you. So what do you think when you think of that? 
This is the future restoration of Israel. This is what we look forward to in the future. So he says, and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. And interesting, so Jezreel means scattered and it means sowed. So now we get this part of the word where we're seeing that God had sowed the children of Israel in the land and now they're blossoming in the land. They're, the seeds that God has sown over all these years now, they're starting to blossom and become something real. And he says, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Do you, do you notice that? So this is verse 1 of chapter 2, but it really belongs to chapter 1. But notice, say to your brethren, my people. Remember before it was lo Ruma, and lo am I. And that means no mercy, not my people. So now God's saying, I'm going to restore you and you're going to be in mercy and you're going to be my people. So verse 2 of chapter 2. So he says, bring charges against your mother. Bring charges for she is not my wife nor am I her husband. Let her pull away her her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. So what this is saying, and remember, so the actual relationship between Hosea and Gomer was a picture of God the Father's relationship with the nation of Israel. So he pictured that as a marriage. God the Father pictured his relationship with Israel as a marriage. And so as they're seeing this marriage between Gomer and Hosea and they're seeing Gomer go off and commit lewd acts and that phraseology, the way it's phrased with, uh, it says, uh, and her adulteries from be- between her breasts, it, it signifies that she was seducing. She was trying to bring attention to herself in sexual ways, it wasn't as if she just kind of got caught up into something. She was luring men into her seductive ways as she was married to Gomer. What this describes for us is the pain of God the Father as he was experiencing it from the people that he loved so much. It explains spiritual adultery when people who God has given life eternal in him. So we can, it's talking directly to the nation of Israel and the Jews, but we can think of it in our uh, context as believers in Christ. When we go after the things of the world in place of God, that's committing spiritual adultery. And here we get an idea of what that feels like to God. 
especially as, as we invite it into our life. This is the picture that God has given us that, that it hurts him. And you can just kind of feel the earthly pain that one might feel in a situation like this. But I don't know how you're picturing yourself. If you're picturing yourself as Hosea, but better picture yourself as Gomer. Because that was our condition before God rescued us. We're all Gomers. We're all those who have strayed. And if you're a believer, you are one whom God has gathered back to himself, not because of us, but because of him. So it says in verse 4, it says, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. So what that's explaining is Israel is like the wife and the children are like the individual people of Israel that are betraying God. It says in, in verse 5, it says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, whom give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. What she's saying is they're paying me as I'm straying from my relationship, as I'm straying from my covenant, as I'm straying from the one who's given me so much. Now I'm looking to get money from other people so I can be independent of my husband. I can pay my own for my own things. Verse 6, Therefore, behold... I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. Now, this is the grace of God, isn't it? What this is, is a picture of how when a believer strays from the Lord and God makes it uncomfortable for them, A true believer will be convicted when they stray from the Lord. A true believer won't be comfortable in their sin. And here we have an amazing text. Specifically, it's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, but also in our context. This is talking about what happens when a believer strays from the Lord. There's always going to be places where we're going to bump into these hedges, these boundaries of things that poke us and prick us and are uncomfortable. And this is exactly what it's like when a believer strays. Because when a believer strays, they're going away from their nature. See, before we are born again, this was our nature. When we're born again, this is not our nature. And so we we go and stray from the Lord and, and we start bumping into things that keep pricking us and poking us and and messing us up. And that's when a believer has has to heed what's going on because if we keep forcing our way, it's going to be a bloody mess. In verse 7 it says, She will chase 
her lovers, but will not overtake them. This is, this is just a picture of just this unbridled desire for one's own way. Yes, she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. So her straying and the pain of rebelling against God caused something to happen of realization. And if you are straying from the Lord and getting banged up and bruised, it's time to return to the Lord. And if you know somebody that's doing this, pray that God will bring them to a place of repentance, a place where their eyes will be open, where they, they'll, be, they'll realize why they keep getting into these situations. In verse 8 it says, For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and I multiplied her silver and gold, which they had prepared for Baal. And, and what this is saying is that, that the husband, Hosea, he had given his wife everything, and she didn't want it. And this is a, a picture of Israel, and this is a picture of us, that God has given the believer everything. And there's nothing outside of God that we can find that he hasn't already given to us. And it says that they that she used what God had given her to offer to the idol Baal. Verse nine it says, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all the mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, her appointed feasts. In other words, she through her sin will come to a place of emptiness and destitution. And God will allow that to happen for the purpose of returning back to God. Verse 12 says, And I will destroy her vines and her figs, fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales. The reason it's plural is because these images of this false god, which was part of that was their fertility gods. They would be different images depending on the different places, lands, cities, towns, whatever. They'd have different images. So, verse 13, For the days of the bales to which she burned incense, she decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. And I find that very poignant. When you start to gather 
the emotion, the feeling of this text and all that God has done for her and all that God had rescued her from and loved her and bestowed upon her and, and she didn't want any of that. And she came to a place where she forgot the Lord. We need to be very careful of that. We are prone to be like that. We are prone to take things for granted. We are prone to be complacent. We are prone to feel entitled. We are prone to not have a fear of the Lord, a reverence for the Lord, a devotion to the Lord. And one thing I want you to pick up through this whole thing, God wanted a loving relationship with Israel. Not one of a master to a slave, but one of a husband to a wife. And, and we hear this description and and we think, man, how much does God really love us? When I read these verses, I, I can't help but think of God's love for me, despite me. That He still continues to love me. And no matter what I do to reject that and rebel against it, He doesn't stop ever loving me. His love doesn't even decrease for me. Like we can have a tendency to do, where we have levels of love. God's love is not like that. It's maximum love. So in verse 14 it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Notice that. God is saying, the way that I'm going to bring Israel back to myself and the way Hosea is going to bring Gomer back is not to grab her by her coat tails or her scruff of her neck and pull her back. He's going to allure her and that means use kind words. Isn't that amazing? Let let this soak in a little bit. God was going to bring her back by His love, His loving kindness. He says, He will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor. That means the valley of trouble. As a door of hope. The valley of trouble is a door of hope. This is a message for the world today, isn't it? There is a door of hope in the place of the worst trouble. And that door of hope is the Lord. And he puts that door of hope in the valley of Achor, the valley, the darkest, deepest, most horrible places there's a door of hope and that's that's God and I love how Jesus says that he is the door and he stands at the door and knocks isn't that amazing and it says she shall shall sing there this is where true worship begins in the valley of Achor which is the door of hope when we come to the Lord understanding what He brought us out of, 
This is where worship comes from. True worship from the heart. As in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. Identification. Associating with her identity. And this is what we do when we call Jesus our Lord. When we're not ashamed of the gospel. When we identify ourselves, When we understand as believers who we are, children of God. Nothing more, nothing less that we're children of God. And we're proud to identify with Jesus Christ. And no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals. And they shall be remembered by their name no more. You're going to be done with all this idol worship. And that's exactly what happened to Israel when they were taken captive by the Assyrians and then later by the Babylonians. And they went into this land that was filled with idols. And when they went back into their land, they didn't worship idols anymore. They got sick of it. And sometimes God will give us over to what we want so we get sick of it and come to the place where all we want is the Lord. In verse 18, almost finished. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. So he's talking about the millennial kingdom. Bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth, there won't be war anymore or violence. I will make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. That's something that a, an Orthodox Jew will have in their phylacteries. That statement right there, and it, it's something they'd have on their forehead or on their arm as well, and they would repeat that over and over again. Notice it was repeated three times to emphasize that God will betroth or marry or bring back or restore in that particular type of relationship. This is the New Covenant. So the nation of Israel will enjoy the new covenant after the seven-year tribulation period. And in verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, new wine, with oil. They They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people and they shall say, you are my God. What an amazing thing that's going to happen. And I can't wait to worship 
with the nation of Israel, the Jews in the millennial kingdom, and watch them worship Jesus Christ as a nation. That is going to be a thrill. So let's pray. God bless you guys. And we're off to a good start in the book of Hosea. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and listening online. I pray a blessing on them, Lord. I pray that you pour out your spirit on them. I pray that they would just relish who they are in you, enjoy their relationship with you. I pray that they would know how much you love them, how much you care for them. And I pray, Lord, that they would live and walk and move and breathe in your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night, and we'll see you on Sunday.